Chapter Five of Lives of Poor Boys Who Became Famous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lives of Poor Boys Who Became Famous by Sarah Knowles Bolton. Sir Josiah Mason. One sunny morning in June, I went out five miles from the great manufacturing city of Birmingham, England, to the pretty town called Erdington, to see the Mason Orphanage. I found an immense brick structure with high Gothic towers in the midst of thirteen acres of velvety lawn. Over the portals of the building were the words, Do Deeds of Love. Three hundred happy children were scattered over the premises. The girls in brown dresses with long white aprons, some were in the great playroom, some doing the housework, and some serving at dinner. Sly Cupid creeps into an orphan asylum even, and the matron had to watch carefully lest the biggest pieces of bread and butter be given by the girls to the boys they liked best. In the large grounds full of flowers and trees, among the children he so tenderly loved and called by name, the founder sir josiah mason and his wife are buried in a beautiful mausoleum a gothic chapel with stone carving and stained glass windows and who was this founder in a poor plain home in kidderminster february twenty third seventeen ninety five sir josiah mason was born his father was a weaver and his mother the daughter of a laborer at eight years of age with of course little education the boy began the struggle of earning a living his mother fitted up two baskets for him and these he filled with baker's cakes and sold them about the streets little joe became so great a favorite that the buyers often gave him an extra penny finally a donkey was obtained and a bag containing cakes in one end and fruit and vegetables in the other was strapped across his back in this way for seven years joe peddled from door to door did anybody ever think then that he would be rich and famous the poor mother helped him with her scanty means and both parents allowed him to keep all he could make his father's advice used to be joe thee'st got a few pence never let anybody know how much thee'st got in thee pockets and well the boy carried out his father's injunction in after life when he was fifteen his brother had become a confirmed invalid and needed a constant attendant the father was away at the shop and the mother busy with her cares so joe who thought of others always before himself determined to be the nurse and earn some money also he set about becoming a shoemaker having learned the trade from watching an old man who lived near their house but he could make only a bare pittance then he taught himself writing and earned a trifle for composing letters and valentines for his poor neighbors this money he spent in books for he was eager for an education he read no novels nor poetry but books of history science and theology finally the mother started a small grocery and bakery and joe assisted many of their customers were tramps and beggars who could buy only an ounce or half ounce of tea but even a farthing was welcome to the masons later 
Josiah took up carpet weaving and blacksmithing, but he could never earn more than five dollars a week, and he became restless and eager for a broader field. He had courage, was active and industrious, and had good habits. He was now twenty-one. He decided to go to Birmingham on Christmas Day to visit an uncle whom he had never seen. He went, and this was the turning point of his life. His uncle gave him work in making gilt toys, and what was perhaps better still for the poor young man, he fell in love with his cousin, Annie Griffiths, and married her the following year. This marriage proved a great blessing, and for fifty-two years, childless, they two were all in all to each other. For six years the young husband worked early and late, with the promise of succeeding to the small business. But at the end of those years that promise was broken, and Mason found himself at thirty, out of work, and owning less than one hundred dollars. Walking down the street one day, in no very happy frame of mind, a stranger stepped up to him and said, Mr. Mason? Yes, was the answer. You are now, I understand, without employment. I know someone who wants just such a man as you, and I will introduce him to you. Will you meet me tomorrow morning at Mr. Harrison's, the split ring maker? I will. The next day the stranger said to Mr. Harrison, I have brought you the very man you want. The businessman eyed Mason closely, saying, I've had a good many young men come here, but they're afraid of dirtying their fingers. Mason opened his somewhat calloused hands, and looking at them, said, Are you ashamed of dirtying yourself to get your own living? Mason was at once employed, and a year later Mr. Harrison offered him the business at $2,500. Several men, observing the young man's good qualities, had offered to loan him money when he should go into trade for himself. He bethought himself of these friends and called upon them, but they all began to make excuse. The world's preferers of help or friendship we can usually discount by half. Seeing that not a dollar could be borrowed, Mr. Harrison generously offered to wait for the principal till it could be earned out of the profits. This was a noble act, and Mr. Mason never ceased to be grateful for it. He soon invented a machine for beveling hoop rings and made five thousand dollars the first year from its use. Thenceforward his life reads like a fairy tale. One day, seeing some steel pens on a card in a shop window, he went in and purchased one for twelve cents. That evening he made three, and enclosed one in a letter to Perry of London, the maker, paying eighteen cents postage, which now would only be two cents. His pen was such an improvement that Mr. Perry at once wrote for all he could make. In a few years Mason became the greatest pen-maker in the world, employing a thousand persons and turning out over five million pens per week. Sixty tons of pens, containing one and a half million pens to the ton, were often in his shops. What a change from peddling cakes from door to door in Kidderminster! Later he became the moneyed partner in the great electroplating trade of the Elkingtons whose beautiful work at the Centennial Exposition we all remember. Mr. Mason never forgot his laborers. When he established copper smelting works in Wales, he built neat cottages for the workmen and schools for the 350 children. 
the welsh refused to allow their children to attend school where they would be taught english mr mason overcame this by distributing hats bonnets and other clothing to the pupils and once in school they needed no urging to remain the manufacturer was as hard a worker as any of his men for years he was the first person to come to his factory and the last to leave it he was quick to decide a matter and act upon it and the most rigid economist of time he allowed nobody to waste his precious hours with idle talk nor did he waste theirs he believed with shakespeare that talkers are no good doers his hours were regular he took much exercise on foot and lived with great simplicity he was always cheerful and had great self-control finally he began to ask himself how he could best use his money before he died he remembered his poor struggling mother in his boyish days his first gift should be a home for aged women a noble thought his next should be for orphans as he was a great lover of children for eight years he watched the beautiful building of his orphanage go up and then saw the happy children gathered within bringing many of them from kidderminster who were as destitute as himself when a boy he seemed to know and love each child for whose benefit he had included even his own lovely home a million dollars in all the annual income for the orphanage is about fifty thousand dollars what a pleasure he must have had as he saw them swinging in the great playgrounds where he had even thought to make triple columns so they could better play hide-and-seek at eight he was trudging the streets to earn bread they should have an easier lot through his generosity for this and other noble deeds queen victoria made him a knight what would his poor mother have said to such an honor for her boy had she been alive what would the noble man now over eighty do next with his money he recalled how hard it had been for him to obtain knowledge the colleges were patronized largely by the rich he would build a great school of science free to all who depended upon themselves for support they might study mathematics languages chemistry civil engineering without distinction of sex or race for five years he watched the elegant brick and stone structure in birmingham rise from its foundations and then october first eighteen eighty in the midst of assembled thousands and in the presence of such men as fawcett bright and max muller mason science college was formally opened professor huxley r w dale and others made eloquent addresses in the evening a thousand of the best of england gathered at the college made beautiful by flowers and crimson drapery on the dais sat the noble giver in his eighty-sixth year the silence was impressive as the grand old man arose handing the key of his college his million-dollar gift to the trustees surely truth is stranger than fiction to what honor and renown had come the humble peddler on the following twenty-fifth of june sir josiah mason was born to his grave in the erdington mausoleum three hundred and fifty orphan children followed his coffin which was carried by eight servants or workingmen as he had requested after the children had sung a hymn they covered the coffin lid with flowers which he so dearly loved he sleeps in the midst of his gifts one of england's 
noble benefactors. End of chapter 5